right, here we go. Uh, hello, everyone. How's your reInvent going so far? Good? All right. Look, and you're still here. It's 4.45. When I saw this slot, I was like, oh, I drew the short straw, didn't I? You know, who's going to be here at the end of the first day? Probably everyone's all jet lagged. But you know what? I'm glad to see you made it. My name is uh, John Winford. I lead the Database Freedom Program globally for AWS. With me today, I have Scott and Steve uh, from Dow Jones, who are here to spend some time talking about their journey from the cloud uh, to, uh, well, to the cloud using all of our tools and technologies. Now, agenda. You're probably used to seeing these sort of slides. Um, we're going to spend some time today talking about what is Amazon Aurora <clears throat> and talking about uh, new ways of doing things that you may have been used to doing with relational databases. I mean, databases have been around for many years, but that doesn't mean there's not some new and improved ways of doing things. Uh, provided it all sounds good, you're probably wondering, well, how do I get to the cloud? You know, it's, it's one thing to say it. You know, you've all heard salespeople talk, oh, yeah, it'll just migrate. It'll, it'll be easy. You'll get up and running tomorrow. We know it's a journey. There's more to it than that. I'll spend a bit of time talking about some of the options we have to get us to the cloud. Because you're probably going to see 10 years worth of PowerPoint in one week uh, this week, and you probably have had enough of it, I'm going to go through my slides as quickly as I can. I'm not trying to blast through so you don't really understand it. I'm trying to get through quickly so you have some reference material to look at later on if you want. Uh, but I'm going to spend some time actually showing you how this works, hands-on, in action, demo, uh, how you actually migrate a database and including an application to the cloud. So that's what I'm blasting through to do. Uh, the joys of demos are, well, you never know what will happen. Something could go very wrong on me. But uh, hopefully it's going to be one of those demos that shows you, look, this is, this is really this simple to get to the cloud. And I'll pass it over to Steve and Scott, and uh, they'll talk about Dow Jones's journey. And at the end, we'll have some time for questions. And the, uh, the techs have asked me to remind you, if you have questions, do come up and speak into the microphone that's at the front here uh, so everyone can hear. All right, so next slide, maybe. There we go. Uh, related breakouts. Uh, it's a big week. It's hard to decide which of all of the sessions you want to go to. Um, here's just some that I thought might be of interest to you. Uh, they're very much related to things that I'm going to talk about today, perhaps in a bit more detail than I'll have time to really dive into. So just you know, things to think about if you want to look uh, at stuff in a bit more in detail. So Amazon Aurora, what is it? Well, Amazon Aurora is a MySQL and PostgreSQL compatible relational database built for the cloud. It gives you the performance and availability of commercial databases at a tenth the cost. Uh, when we launched Aurora, I think we did it uh, three reInvents ago now, the very first question we got was, well, OK, you've done Aurora for MySQL. When's Postgres coming along? Uh, it just makes sense. So we're going to talk a little bit about what Aurora is, uh, how it differs from some of the standard open source uh, offerings. Uh, you can see from up there on the slide, we've got uh, basically performance, scalability, and durability um, that are equivalent or better than the commercial systems, but giving you the power of open source. Um, that's kind of the, the high-level idea of the product. But before I talk about Aurora in detail, let's just take a step back. Databases, been around for many, many years. Um, the model, in some ways, hasn't changed a whole lot. A database consists of a SQL query optimizer, transaction, caching, logging, and storage. Um, what happens? Well, they all scale up together, and they all fail together. So the idea is, if we're going to look at how to do a database now in the cloud, there's probably a better way. So if you're going to reinvent the, the database, what are you going to do? You're going to break things apart. That's just good software design these days. Uh, you've heard of the term microservices. It gets battered around, or batted around, I should say. Um, the idea being you want to leverage these microservices, split things up, make sure that they're independent, that they're self-healing, that they're replicating, uh, that you don't have a single point of failure. That's generally the idea of what we're going to do so that you can scale things individually and ensure that you've got redundancy in there that leverages the power of the cloud. Now, what does that look like visually? With Aurora, the general idea is we have taken the database engine and broken that off and built a distributed storage system, one that we only write log records to, never data blocks. Uh, the storage system copies its data so that it's redundant. It has its own monitoring system or service that can repair itself when needed, and it's spread across an entire AWS region so that application servers can be anywhere. Now, just database or uh, AWS 101, if nobody knows, 
um, a region. You might as well think about it as a city, a geographical area. And inside a region, you have multiple availability zones. Each availability zone is essentially a data center that's going to be separated geographically by 50 miles, give or take, from another availability zone. So the chances of more than one availability zone going down at any given time is pretty slim. But just in case it happens, you can see with uh, Aurora, we have things built out and spread across these availability zones. We have six copies of data, uh, two in each availability zone to protect against availability zone plus one failures. So each one of those colors you see on the screen, it's the same data block replicated around so that if anything was to happen, the system just recovers and replicates the data back to the new um, instance that gets spun up again. Um, I should mention that actually Aurora scales dynamically, so if you've been looking at any of the other RDS systems, uh, just know that Aurora will scale up to 64 terabytes in 10 gig blocks, so you don't need to handle all of that. Uh, again, one of the benefits of having uh, a purpose-built database storage layer uh, in there. So what does this get you? Uh, this architecture gets you high performance. You get high performance and high availability. Uh, you can scale out uh, database read capacity by adding up to 15 read replicas. Um, and this allows you to scale to millions of database reads per second and hundreds of thousands of writes. Uh, you can also scale dynamically, right? So you can auto-scale new read replicas as demand requires. Um, and you can you know, go up and go down. Everything with AWS is pay-as-you-go. So you don't need to worry about thinking about things well in advance. Um, if I take an internal example, Amazon.com, uh, we just went through Black Friday, right? So back in the day, we used to have to purchase our commercial systems six months in advance, build them out, um, think what the usage might be, and hope that we could handle the demand on the day. Well, now with Aurora, you can scale up when you need it, scale down when you don't. It's not like you need to pre-purchase hardware and allocate storage and all that sort of thing. Uh, it can all be handled dynamically. What does this get you? Uh, it gets you performance, right? So Amazon Aurora is fast. We get five times the throughput of MySQL or, and three times more throughput than PostgreSQL. So very, very performance system while maintaining 100% compatibility. Some graphs, you know, we've all got to have them. Um, basically, we get a lot faster performance uh, than the standard engines. But, you know, just to be completely honest, because we don't, we don't try to hide things behind uh, veils of secrecy here, this doesn't mean that a given query is going to run five times faster on Aurora than your standard open source engine. It means we can handle five times the load, right? So where that really starts to shine is when you get um, increased client counts, right? So you can see here as we move up the chart to the right, uh, you actually get one and a, well, 1.6 times the throughput you do from the peak RDS Postgres uh, performance, even as the client count keeps increasing with Aurora. Now, looking down the left, though, you'll notice that actually Aurora is a bit slower than RDS Postgres uh, back when you had some low client counts here. And that's simply because we're taking a single availability zone instance of RDS Postgres for the performance here, so it doesn't have to write anything else. As soon as you spin up the multi-availability zone for redundancy, which you would do for any production system on RDS Postgres, it's going to be slower than Aurora right off the bat because it has to be chatty and you know, essentially do the, do the writes across between instances. But you know, it's just interesting. The, the more the load grows, the better the performance differentiation uh, becomes between the two. Same deal with, with uh, Sysbench, uh, much higher performance there, uh, two times two times at the peak and 5x at higher counts. Um, yeah, basically, as you grow, that's when things become really obvious. Uh, same deal goes here. Press the button again. Um, as the database grows in size, so we're not talking client connections here. We're talking size of database. Uh, the performance improves as you get bigger and bigger in scale uh, between the two database systems again. All right, so how do we achieve this? Well. We achieve this by tightly integrating the database engine with SSD-based virtual storage layer for database workloads. It reduces the writes to the storage system, and it minimizes the lock contention. Uh, it eliminates delays by, created by database process threads. Uh, there's no magic. We just do a lot asynchronously. Instead of waiting for stuff to complete as you're replicating between instances, uh, we're handling all of the storage layer. It's a very chatty interface, if you will. But you, as the users or the database clients on the uh, server, just don't need to wait for things to happen that's actually happening in the background. Um, 
just a whole lot faster by doing things uh, using those microservices that I was mentioning beforehand. What about availability, right? Performance only matters if your database is up. You don't want your database to go down. So to handle that, as I mentioned before, we write everything in six different locations, right? So these six copies um, basically give you the ability to protect against a whole availability going down or a single node inside of avail availability zone. And if anything ever happens, that node comes back up and the storage layer handles the communication again asynchronously behind the scenes so that things get back up and running in very minimal time. What does this get you? This gets you recovery up to 97% faster than your standard database engine. So I'm just gonna skip through this a little bit and point out that as it grows, Aurora doesn't actually take any longer to recover, right? So we recover in three seconds no matter what. Uh, and you can see the other engines, uh, this is in comparison to Postgres, uh, it takes a lot longer to recover the bigger the redo log grows. And that's basically because Aurora doesn't have a redo log. Remember, I said no, no log writes, it just goes straight down to the storage. Uh, so very performance, performant rather, if a recovery is required. Other things, you can do cross-region read replicas. So if you have um, database users that are spread around the globe, uh, you know, say you're serving up websites, one in each geographical region, you can have um, another instance running closer to your uh, endpoint uh, for performance, uh, performance characteristics. It does use bin log replication, which isn't as fast as that replication within an availability zone, but it's still very quick and for an end user, who's, again, doing something like looking at a website, uh, it works perfectly fine. Other things to note, uh, if you haven't checked it out, Aurora comes with performance insights. Uh, this is for you reforming Oracle Enterprise Manager addicts. You like to drill down and find out why this particular query is running slowly. Um, basically, you enable PI on each instance. It does support Aurora MySQL and Aurora Postgres. Uh, it's free for seven days. After that, uh, you pay for information storage. Now, when I say seven days, I mean seven days of transaction history, if you will. Uh, but if you wanted to say how long a query ran last month end, you know, 30 days ago, you, you would be paying for the 23 days on top of that there. Um, but yeah, that's just something I suggest you look at if you're uh, really looking to do some deep down analysis as to what's fast and what's slow in your database. Aurora Serverless, uh, this was announced a little while ago. This is a really cool thing. So if you've got something that has bursty workloads, so uh, an example I like to use is a National Weather Service. Um, people don't really care about the weather until there's a storm barreling down on them, right? Everyone then logs on and checks out the weather and goes, okay, what do I do? Um, it's a great application for something like serverless. It scales up and scales down based on demand. Uh, it'll actually shut right down when it's not in use. Um, it's pay per second usage, uh, but you know, Again, with the uh, <clears throat> tradition of being honest, you don't want to use this for something that's up and running all the time, right? It's meant for bursty workloads. Say you have something that happens, a month-end processing, uh, it's great for that, but you don't want to use it for, you know, say a, uh, a warehouse manufacturing system where the, where the uh, manufacturing line's going 24 hours a day. It's, it's not the target use case, but definitely need things to look at, and it's all about trying to keep costs low for you guys. Compatibility. <clears throat> Some of our competitors, they, they like to kind of say, oh look, you're gonna get locked into Amazon's way of doing things if you go to Aurora. That's just not true. Uh, Aurora with MySQL compatibility or Aurora with Postgres compatibility, 100% compatible. If you, for whatever reason, decide that it isn't working for you, you can migrate right back out to a Postgres or MySQL instance running on your premises. No worries at all. 100% compatible, so just keep that in mind. Lots of customers have jumped on board, including Dow Jones here today. Um, it's been the fastest growing service in AWS history. Uh, this adoption plus uh, usage by clients such as Shadi and Tinder, the world's most popular matrimonial and dating websites, show that Aurora really must be the best relationship database. I'm sorry, I, I had to say it. But, you know, you, you picked up on that one. All right, so old dog, new tricks. Uh, databases have been around for many years. Doesn't mean the same way of doing things that you did 10 years ago is the way to do it today. I'm gonna go through this pretty quickly, but basically, you've gotta leverage the cloud to discover cost savings, get better agility, agility et cetera, et cetera. Um, this is probably more of a reference slide than anything else. Uh, how you used to do things, new ways of doing things. What I wanna point out is 
the native architecture aspect of the right-hand column for Aurora. A lot of this stuff that was a special feature you had to pay extra for on your commercial database is just part of Aurora. So there you go. Um, another thing to point out, any of you running SQL Server 2008? I know there's a few of you in the room. It's apparently the most popular instance of SQL Server out there. Uh, end of service is coming soon. You're, of course, more than welcome to upgrade. I'm sure Microsoft would be happy to take your money, but it might be a good time to look at migrating to an open source or Amazon native platform. So assuming you want to move, uh, ways to do it. Lots of ways. You can use Aura to PG. If you've got you know, some third-party tool that you've purchased, you're welcome to use it. We just suggest you take a look at the database migration service and schema conversion tool. These can help you convert from one database engine to another. Um, SCT is free. DMS is free for certain combinations. It's a bit of a replication Swiss Army knife. You can move from on-premises to the cloud, switching between, between engines. And reiterating again, we don't lock you in. You can use DMS to move right back out of Aurora to SQL Server or Oracle if you feel like paying some more money to them. It's totally up to you. We don't lock you in. Uh, again, standard customer slides. Uh, to date, we've moved over 100,000 database instances, uh, and the pace of migrations is continuing to grow. Uh, what are they? Well, they help you modernize, migrate, and replicate. Modernize meaning switch between database engines. Uh, so going from Oracle to, say, Aurora Postgres. Migrate if you wanted to go from um, SQL Server up to SQL Server on RDS, you could use it for that. Although traditionally, you're better off to use a native solution if you're sticking with the same engine, right? So you just take a SQL Server backup export, import it into RDS SQL. But you could use it. The option's there. And ongoing replication is very popular. You're keeping maybe a dev instance in sync, or you're using it to build a data warehouse. You're populating Redshift with information from five different database engines. You can use DMS and SCT for that. SCT is step one. Step one meaning convert your schema. So you're going to convert your schema from, say, Oracle to Aurora Postgres. Uh, you're going to be left with an empty schema. And then you're going to populate your data using DMS. You can also use it to modernize your data warehouse. So if you're looking to go from, say, uh, Vertica to uh, Redshift, SCT will both convert the schema and migrate your data. DMS, uh, you can do it for a variety of things. It, as I said many times, it'll migrate data, but you can also do some interesting things like consolidating shards. If you have a bunch of MySQL shards out there, uh, you can do minor version upgrades. So if you don't want to take a few seconds of downtime, or I should say a couple minutes of downtime to upgrade an RDS MySQL instance with the click of a button, uh, you can actually use DMS to migrate between, say, a 5.6 and a 5.7 instance, and just have a switch quick DNS update of about three seconds to switch between instances. So some interesting things to go about uh, using the system for. We support quite a range of different systems with DMS. Uh, it keeps growing, it seems, every couple weeks to me. Uh, when I started with the system, I think we had like five different endpoints. You can see where we're at now. So it does keep growing. What does DMS do? Uh, well, it migrates data. The idea being you spin up a replication server. Uh, this replication server we manage for you has software on it. You define some endpoints. Where is my source data? Where is my target data? You select which uh, databases or tables or schemas you want to move. You don't have to move everything. It's a replication server, or a logical replication product, I should say. So you could actually even bring certain rows over if you wanted. You move it across and replicate. And if you want to keep it in sync, you can. And when you're comfortable, you do a quick DNS update, and you're using the new system. Now, I said I was going to whip through these slides pretty quick. That's because it's now time for me to show you this thing in action. So here comes the demo. Let me just get this going. You should all see my screen now. Look at that. There we go. Um, yeah, as I said, I figure everyone sees a lot of PowerPoints this week. So let's see this thing actually migrate. The idea being here, we're going to migrate from a SQL Server database to an Aurora Postgres database. Uh, obviously, we're going to be using some sample data. I'm just going to give you guys a quick show of what it looks like. I'm going to log on and use uh, a database client tool that I've got. So you can use any um, engine you're comfortable with or any query tool. I just use dBeaver because it works with you know, pretty much every different database engine I need to use. Uh, you can see I've got a fair few on the left there. Uh, we're going to be migrating, as I said, a SQL Server database. So I'll just connect in here. And just demo DB. Again, of course, you're going to have a much more complicated, larger database. But the same, the same thing holds true here. 
Uh, it's just a sample database I grabbed from somewhere. I don't really remember where it was now. Uh, and it's, a, it's an online order entry type, uh, type system. So I can go in here and read some data. All right, so we're gonna have some, uh, some information coming out of it, hopefully. There we go. Interesting. There we go. Got some data. Um, and what is also important to note is, remember I said the schema conversion tool moves your database schema. DMS will move your data. So your schema is, of course, your table structure, but also other things such as views, procedures, triggers, what have you. So I have this procedure here, again, just for, for sample purposes. Uh, it's called large order. The idea being it's just going to filter records out of the system that are greater than a certain size. So you can see this procedure is written in uh, T-SQL, right? So here I am, I'm joining from a customer table to, uh, to an order table and taking a parameter. So I'm saying, look, only give me orders greater than a certain size. So I'm just gonna say, just show this to you in action. Um, exec demo db dot dbo order. So say I want orders greater than $500 in value. I'll just go and I'll run that query. I don't know why the, um, oh, it'll come back in a second, I'm sure, or it won't. There we go, so there we go, we've got data. Those are all the orders greater than system, and you can see they're all about, well, they're all greater than $500 in this case. So because a database is obviously your schema, your data, but why, are you, why do you have this? You have it because applications hang off of it. You need to convert your apps, of course, to also work with the new database engine. So if we were gonna do that, I will just go, and show you this sample app that I've written. So I'm gonna go to Visual Studio, because it makes sense, I'm going from SQL Server, so I probably have a .NET app. In this case, I've got a C-sharp.NET app that's talking to that database that, uh, that we were just looking at here. So it's a pretty basic app. I've got this one, uh, one file here, and you can see essentially it's just SQL queries embedded in the code, but these SQL queries are only gonna work with SQL Server, they're not gonna work with Postgres. But if I just wanna show it to you in action, I'm just gonna build the app. Go to the terminal, run the app. Simple console application. Say I want to see some customers by a certain last name. I'm partial to W, so hit that. And you can see it's pulled customers out of the system. Let's start with W, uh, top 10 products. All right, there's the top 10 products in the system. And likewise, let's get some information for, I don't know, order six. All right, and there's, uh, looks like we've got some uh, Chartreuse in there, so yeah, it's a basic app querying from my SQL Server database. So my first step now that I've shown you the legacy system in action is I want to convert the schema. So to convert the schema, I'm gonna use the schema conversion tool. So remember the schema conversion tool is a free app that's available for download on our website. Works for a variety of platforms. Um, and we're gonna convert it. Actually, well, that's, well, it's launching pretty quick. All right, so new project, go in here, and I want to convert from SQL Server to Aurora Postgres. If you don't know what you want to convert to, you can also run this in a wizard mode where it will say, okay, I'll show you what is the, most, the easiest target to convert automatically. That's what, that's what the report will do. It'll say, look, I'll get 85 conversion percentages to MySQL and I'll get 90% conversion to Postgres, right? So it just gives you your, your choices. Uh, just connecting to the SQL Server system. While it's doing that, I'm just going to bring up a web browser and show you DMS. All right, so log on to AWS. Sign into the console, sign in. All right, so database migration service. Uh, just to show you guys what I've got, that there's no funny business, I've got my replication server already configured. Uh, this just does the processing of the migration task, right, when I wanna move the data. To save some time, I've pre-created my endpoints. Uh, you can see I've worked with a lot of different databases in the past, so all an endpoint is, and is, is in essence like ODBC connection information. 
IP address, username, password, right? So that's all there. Um, and then there's a replication task. So that's what actually moves the data from a source to a target. You can see there's nothing here at all. It's completely empty. Switch back to the schema conversion tool. It's going slow in my SQL database today. Need something. Y'all love it. It always happens during a demo. It worked fine yesterday. Um, come on, connect. There we go. 97, 98. There we go. So we've connected to my SQL Server database. I'm going to connect to my Aurora Postgres target now. You've probably noticed this was pre-populated. It's just because I've done it before, right? So it's, it's all there, but notice the password isn't saved. Again, security, right? So that's, uh, that's not saved. I'm just going to paste that in. Connect to my Aurora Postgres target. Um, I'll just highlight how much faster that was than SQL Server. Just, you know? <laughs> Coincidence, believe me. Yeah. Um, and OK, so what we have here, standard IDE. On the left, we have the source. On the right, we have the target. So source being SQL Server, target being Amazon Aurora. I'm just going to go in here and say, I want to migrate. Remember, it was my demo DBO uh, schema. So just go here. Hopefully, it's going a little bit faster than it was before. It's really not. There we go. And I'm going to say, create report. It's not going to take as long as it did last time. Come on. I guess this is when I need to have some, you know, inter intermission music or something like that. Going, okay, I. Uh, it's uh, it is going slow. I guess I need to uh, take advantage of the abilities of RDS and scale the instance size up or something like that. I, uh, but I can't do it in the middle of a demo because that'll just take uh, it'll take a bit more time. Oh, come on, SQL, behave. All right, so there we go. Reports built. Uh, here we go. It gives you an executive summary. Uh, it tells you we've done an analysis. Uh, how many conversion actions there are. What you can see, and this is, this is pretty good. I mean, it's a demo database, but it says, look, I'm going to be able to convert all of your uh, database storage objects without any issue, but we're going to have a bit, of a bit of a problem with some of your database code objects. You can go to the Action Items tab, and it'll actually show you what the problems are. Um, I can tell you that, in particular, uh, it doesn't like the fact that set no count is on, right? So what I can do here is expand this, and here's this large order uh, procedure that I showed you earlier. Um, I actually know it's not as much of a problem as it appears to be, so I'm just going to hit Convert Schema. Do that. And it converts it. And what I can show you is if I look at some of the tables now, so I'll go to just say the address table, that's the SQL to create the table on SQL Server. And here's the equivalent on how to convert it on, or create it rather, on Aurora Postgres. Now notice we've got some differences in case, right? So Aurora or Postgres does all lowercase by default. And then likewise, if I go to my large order procedure, uh, here's that same procedure you saw earlier on. And if I look at it in Aurora, uh, you can see it's, it's a little bit different. The, the same general uh, syntax is there. And all it's done is it's just commented out the no count stuff. It's not really an issue for, uh, for um, Aurora. So I'm just going to apply that schema to the database. It's just warning me, OK, you know, might overwrite some objects that were there if it was already in existence. And now what I can do is if I go back here uh, and have a look, and I will connect to my Postgres database, go here, and do a refresh. Oh, wait, that's my SQL. Really going to help if I connect to the right database, isn't it? Um, go here, schemas. And now I have this demo DBO uh, schema in here. And there's table. So we've got this, this order table here, for example. I'm just going to uh, yeah, sure. do that. Um, and if I have a quick look, say, in this address table, you'll see it's empty. So remember I said first step is convert your schema with SCT. Second step is migrate your data with DMS. 
So to migrate the data, I can either go straight into DMS, or from here, I'm actually gonna right-click and go create DMS task, because it's integrated, right? The two products, they know about each other. There was some configuration I had to, you know, tell SCT which, uh, which region I was connecting to and what my AWS account information was, but, you know, that's, that's all you have to do. So let's move some data. Uh, replication server, that's that one that I showed was created earlier inside DMS. It's using those same endpoints you saw that I had pre-created, uh, and I will just hit create. All right, so now it's creating my task for me. If I switch to DMS and do a refresh, you can see there the task is. It's starting to be created, okay? Now, while it's doing that, the next step, of course, is to convert my application. I've converted my schema. Now I need to convert my app. So all you do is I go back to SCT, and I go to the Applications menu, and I go New Application, and I'm going to convert my C-sharp app, and I'm going to use my demo DBO schema from before, right? That's the baseline. And hit OK. Wait, is that right? Uh, yeah, that'll do. No, that's totally, totally the wrong thing. Hold on. Sorry, my bad. Application, new application, C Sharp app, demo DB, schemas. And I just have to browse and tell it where my source code is, right? So documents in this case, code, hello world, right? You know, very creatively named. Go in here, and now it's got these C-sharp files that you saw me looking at in Visual Studio before. Um, I know all of my SQL stuff is in the SQL queries file, so I'm just gonna hit analyze, and it's found three queries, right? Three queries that need to be converted. So double click. It's extracted that out of my code. Convert, apply. Do the same for the second one. Convert, apply. And last but not least, convert, apply, and then save. Okay, so I've done that. Just, that's part sort of done, but I just want to go and show you this DMS task and get it running. I need to do a couple things to it before it's totally good to go. You saw how Postgres had everything in lowercase, so I just need to make sure that the schema name is all in lowercase, and I need to add what's called a couple of transformation rules. So they're pretty simple. I just need to say, for my schema, oh, hold on a second. Uh, let me just hit modify on that for a second. Um, actually cancel. I just need to wait till it finishes modifying. All right, you know what? I'll go back to here while I was thinking. So now, if I go here, you'll notice, so I haven't touched anything, but Visual, um, Visual Studio Code is updated. You can see it's now put in this new, uh, not T-SQL, but PLPG SQL, right? So that's now all in there. I need to make a few changes. Um, you know, it didn't get it 100% how I'd like it. I just need to change. Uh, couple things so it makes sure the dynamic SQL gets embedded. So a couple quick mods. And you can tell I'm a little bit pedantic with my spacing and tabbing. I probably don't have to be for the sake of a demo, but you know. So that's just so it's, uh, it's gonna be dynamic. That's one. Uh, let me just scroll down. Top 10, same deal here. I just need to, you know, modify the generated SQL just a touch. Pretty straightforward. Notice now that instead of a top statement, right, top is how you did things in SQL Server, it's done a limit, right, because that's how you do it in Postgres. And last but not least statement I need to update is this uh, one here for the order details. Just trying to do it as quickly as I can. So I give the guys from Tao Jones some time to talk. Uh, go in here. Just again, fixing some of the... Oh, yeah, it is too. Thank you. There we go. And last but not least, 
add the dynamic SQL variable in there. All right, does it look happy? Not quite. Extra double quote. Perfect. Okay, uh, let me just go back here for a second. Modify this. As I said, I needed to add some transformation rules. So where schema is DBO, right? Because that's what it was on SQL Server. I need to make things lower. Actually, no, not schema. Sorry, table. Where schema is DBO, I need to make every, every table that was uppercase or camel case, I need to make it lowercase when I go to Postgres. And likewise for the column. So for the columns where schema is DBO, I want to make everything lowercase. All right, add transformation, we'll modify, and let's just hit resume start task. Okay, so now it's gonna start migrating the data. While that's happening in the background, uh, one last thing that I need to do on my application. You've noticed the, the code has changed from uh, T-SQL to PL, PGSQL, but how does the application know to read from the Postgres database now, right? It, it doesn't use the same libraries as you use to read from a SQL database. You need to use some different libraries. So if I go to the SQL functions class that I wrote, and again, this is just one of many ways of doing things, you can see normally to read from a SQL Server database, you use a .NET um, data provider, right? So that's the library. For Postgres, you just use this other library called NPGSQL. It works in exactly the same way. So if I scroll down here, you can see that um, this is the SQL Server one. Uh, so we're just, we've got a select SQL. I'm just doing a, a reader, in essence, cycling through a SQL data reader and outputting to the console. Again, simple demo app. Uh, in Postgres speak, it's exactly the same. Instead of a SQL connection, I'm using PG SQL connection, right? And it's got the same sort of SQL data reader. Uh, it's just not SQL data reader, it's PG SQL data reader, okay? so. Normally, you'd rewrite this, this particular library. Uh, for me to save some time, I'm just gonna go here, back to my queries, and just replace uh, everywhere that I have uh, select SQL with select PG SQL, or Postgres SQL. All right, one, two, and last but not least, three. Okay, so that's done. Now I'm gonna build my app. Right, rebuild the application and, oh, of course there's an error. Could not copy. All right. All right, let me just do save. Oh, I know what the problem is. Let me, uh, let me exit out of SCT. Lock the files, close. All right, so now the migration task is starting to move the data. I'm just gonna go back into Visual Studio. So hopefully it decides to behave better today. Uh, we're still looking at, yeah, that's the new one. Let's build it. There we go, it built. I don't know what it was doing. And just need to wait for the data to migrate. Hopefully it doesn't take too long. And actually what we can probably do in the meantime is if I go and rerun this query, it's not there yet. This would be a good way to prove that it's actually pointing in the right database. If I run this now, and I do my customers, we probably aren't gonna get anything back. Yeah, so there's no customers there. So you can see we're definitely pointing at the new Postgres database because we're getting no records back. Eventually, when we get some data migrated across, and it's probably my old friend SQL Server running slow. Yeah, you can see it's been sitting for a minute and we've got no rows migrated across, um, you know, the data will, will eventually come. Uh, just to save a bit of time, we can always flip back and show the demo at the end. Uh, eventually the data will migrate. You can see we have converted the app, well rather we've migrated the schema, we've started trying to migrate the data, converted the application, repointed it to the new Aurora Postgres database, and eventually when, this, uh, when the data gets migrated, 
uh, we'll see some information there, but yeah, it's still flowing through at the moment. So I'll just flip over to Steve and Scott to spend a minute, a few minutes, uh, telling you about their migration story. And that should do it. And we'll, uh, we'll see the data migrated over at the end. Thank you. Thanks, John. Hi, everybody. My name is Scott Canham. Uh, it's Steve Stevenson's my colleague here. Uh, we're from Dow Jones. We're both engineers. And we're here to tell you about uh, how we moved one of our most critical databases for all of Dow Jones to Aurora using DMS. Um, so to give you a little background, um, first, about the database, uh, I want to tell you about Dow Jones and uh, how we use it. So Dow Jones, uh, we have a host of consumer properties you see up there. The Wall Street Journal is definitely the most recognizable. Uh, but we have marketwatch.com, Barron's, and then we have a lot of B2B businesses uh, that are used by professionals in the financial and banking space often. So um, the common thing across all of these is our market data. And what I mean about market data is uh, Supportive information about a financial instrument. And what's a financial instrument? Well, that's just a fancy word for a stock or a contract, something you might trade. And the type of data we have about that is the most, the thing people probably most often care about is pricing, um, stocks prices. So we have in this database pricing history. We have statistics about uh, the company. So who is at the head of the company, how many employees are in the company, things like that that a lot of investors care about. So just a quick example of kind of how it, how it makes its way into every product we have. So at the top, we have the Wall Street Journal. Um, that's along the header on the top. That's the home page. Uh, we have index pricing. Uh, we also use it for fantasy stock trading games as a teaching tool. Uh, all of our article pages, we inline the stock uh, price next to the stock's name within the article, and that gives our readers uh, a little more context maybe about the content they're reading. So the database, it was a Microsoft SQL database. It was about a one and a half terabytes, and all of that data was spread over uh, 800 tables. Some of those were just simple lookup tables and you know, 100 rows or less. Uh, but some of them uh, were audit tables or uh, change log tables, and those could get up to a billion rows. Steve's going to talk a little bit about how we handled some of those rows that with things like audit, we don't necessarily need all of those in the new database. Uh, also with this database, more than half of it was dedicated to that pricing history. And we ended up splitting that ourselves across 25 uh, tables. We partitioned it ourselves, and that was primarily a uh, cost uh, trade-off, where we were talking about SQL Server Enterprise Edition at the time was needed to get the built-in partitioning. So uh, this is the structure. It's pretty uh, common, I think, for a high-performance database on-prem or in a data center. Um, so what we had is a main, a publisher in each database or data center. And with that publisher, there was four subscribers. And the publishers were mirrored between each other, but we also used SQL Server to, with remote distributors to keep those subscribers up to date. And that's why I wanted to show all of that because highlighting the, the reason we, we picked Aurora was the licensing when you're talking about at least eight cores per every box up there and licensing on a per core basis, that, that, that's a big decision. So uh, why did we pick Aurora? I, I kind of got to the point a little bit already talking about the pricing. Uh, but also Dow Jones, we've kind of, we've been on a mission to move the mo mo most of our compute and our data to the cloud, probably about the last four years now. Um, a lot of that has to do with being able to use managed services, uh, trying to cut costs, uh, hopefully by using managed services, we can focus more on features and innovate faster. Um, and with Aurora, it was mostly the performance, right? Like we had 10 boxes in the data center in order to feed all of the applications that were using this. So uh, the scalability and the read replicas was pretty enticing to us. 
So we've made the decision now to move to Aurora, uh, but now we have to figure out how we're going to do that, uh, and Steve's going to cover that for us. Thank you, Scott. Afternoon, everybody. Um, so, uh, in the next few slides, I'm going to go ahead and describe in maybe a little bit more detail of uh, the tools that we use from AWS and the experience we had during those migrations, or the migration process. Sorry, it looks like there's a typo in this slide. Uh, from a mile-high view, like, he was, uh, like John was talking about earlier, we knew that we were going to have to migrate the schema. And in our case, we knew that this was probably going to be the mass majority of our uh, time because of the complexity of our schema, the number of tables, procedures, indexes, things like that. We knew that the, this area was going to be a time that we had to spend quite a bit of time in. So that was migrating the schema. Next thing we knew we were going to want to do is we were going to migrate the data. And uh, obviously, DMS is playing a large part in this. And while we're migrating this data, one of the requirements is that we want to make sure that we're capturing any of the data that's coming in from the time that we migrate this data. So that way, at the end, it can catch it back up and maybe even keep uh, replicating that data. Uh, and then the final step we're going to do is we're going to take the loaders and, and the applications that are talking to the on-prem databases, and we're going to move those to the Aurora instance in the cloud. So that way, we can start moving everything else to the cloud. So let's talk about that in a little bit detail. First step, we knew we were going to be migrating the uh, schema. One thing that we knew that we were going to have to do, uh, and every job is different, is you've got to pick the right tool for the job. So we didn't want to close doors. We wanted to analyze all the tools, what was going to be the most efficient, uh, allow us to get the job done quickly, more efficiently, whatever, for this particular project. It was a large project. Uh, in, in our test with the schema conversion tool uh, in a database that was this large, um, we, it got us to about 85, 90% of the way there. Uh, it's a great tool, so I don't want to downplay it. Uh, it did show us that we had, at the time, that we had about 100 actionable items that we had to uh, manually address to complete the schema conversion. So uh, we looked at some of that and saw that some of those were going to take us a little bit of time. So the next thing we did is we wanted to try, or let me, let me step back one thing. One, some of the biggest issues we were seeing is uh, for the manual interventions were things like hence, dynamic SQL, referential integrity. There was other, there was other smaller issues that it, it added up over amount of time. Um, the next tool that we ended up looking at was the MySQL workbench tools that were built right into the MySQL to see if these would work for us. Um, luckily, that would, got us a little bit closer, and we figured that we were going to be spending a lot less time if we went this route in this particular case. Um, let me see here. The one thing that we had to deal with with MySQL, which was the biggest thing, which I want to point out here because anybody that's doing this may run into the same issue. In Microsoft SQL, we have uh, the two and three dotted notation, whereas MySQL has one dotted notation. One of the things we had to account for when we were doing the, mic uh, the migration of the Aurora is that the tool would actually create separate databases for each schema. And we wanted to actually have the tables all living within the same database and not have cross-database joins. So in this case, we modified the MySQL migration to actually take the schema and append it to the table name with an underscore. So that way, we could keep them all within the same database. Uh, some people may actually see that in their migrations uh, in the future. Uh, the next thing that we noticed by going to Aurora and MySQL that we were going to gain as an advantage is we were talking about earlier we had the partition views, or the partition tables that we were manually managing ourselves. So if any of those tables got out of balance, we had 25, 30 tables that we partitioned across. We were managing that data ourselves uh, and having to rebalance ourselves. One of the things we were going to gain from this was the MySQL's partitions table. So when we use DMS to migrate into this, we were going to pick the partition tables in MySQL and get that benefit and no longer having to manage that part of it. So I don't want to, I want to talk about SCT a little bit, because SCT we used in, the re, we, in two or three of our other migrations to full success, 100% all the way. The only two issues that came up were little warnings like this where some of the hints couldn't be used in the indexes and things like that. So it was, it was a very successful tool. So I just want to make sure that everybody knows that, uh, that SCT is a very valuable tool. And we were actually using an older version at the time of this migration, which was 1.0.500, I think. And they've released several versions since then that's probably improved a lot of that. So 
keep that in mind. Uh, next, so now we're going to be migrating the data. This is where we start using the database migration service. We had the need to uh, obviously have production quality data, so we're going to be pulling this from our production cl clusters. We don't want to have any downtime during this transition or this migration. We wanted to complete this in a, a reasonable amount of time. So and we wanted to do it without affecting the running databases. And the database migration services uh, offered by AWS claim that they could do this with little bit, uh, with little or you know, not that much overhead, sorry. Uh, it turned out really good for us, because while we were running the migration, we were only seeing about a 10 or 20% premium on the databases during the migration, uh, which was very good for us, because we had about a 50% uh, leeway on those databases during spike times. So we were able to run this while you know, things were still operating. Uh, let me see here. Oh, another thing I wanted to bring up here too is during our init phases, or during our migration phases to the new Aurora instances, we actually disabled in referential integrity on the destination databases, and I'll explain more about this in a bit and why we did that. And then in our initial migration, our tasks actually consisted of a couple tasks trying to migrate all 800 tables, procedures, I mean, all the, all, all the 800 tables worth of data. So um, we'll, you'll find later that we actually did something different with that. Uh, so then to keep the data up, uh, up to speed, we chose the change data capture, which is part of the DMS migration, which is a very, very nice tool. It'll capture all the new data while your migration's going on. It would keep our, uh, it would actually sync our destination uh, Aurora clusters after the migration. And if we wanted to, we could use that for ongoing replication. In our case, we were just using it to move from on-prem to the cloud, so once we get there, then the, we're gonna cut the CDC off, and, or the task off, so that way we can uh, uh, start running everything in the cloud then, at that point. So, just to summarize a little bit again, we talked about this, large amounts of data, we're talking about audit tables uh, in excess of a billion rows, we're talking 1.5 terabyte worth of data, 800 tables, indexes that go along with them, things like that. So this also was 12 plus years worth of market data history that we were accounting for. So the big question, how long did this take us to migrate this data, right? So when we first started it, the first time, like I said, we didn't do the balancing and stuff like that. We just kind of threw a couple tasks, migrated the data. It took us like three and a half days. That's a long time. We can't have that. We need it to be cut down in time, right? So what we did is we went back to the tables and we started looking at the tasks, how we define them, how, we def uh, how many tables we were moving between, uh, you know, on those tasks, how many we were, how many full data table, ta uh, full table loads were we doing in parallel. And in our particular instance, we were able to cut that time down to 30 hours. That's a lot better. That's something you can accomplish in a weekend if you wanted to, right? That's good for this amount of data. So how did we do that? Uh, I'm gonna detail this a little bit. Uh, what we did is we took and analyzed how many tables were we doing per uh, task, uh, how big were those tables, and then what we did is we set up several tasks that could run in parallel. Now, if you can imagine with the referential integrity, this is one of the reasons we disabled it, right? It's because we wanted to take those tables, hopefully the master already had the referential integrity and it's not being broke, so we could break it here during the migration, so we could spread that across multiple tasks and run them in parallel. Meaning, and where we got an advantage here, is the next thing I'm talking about where we balance the task, the app by the data points. So like, let's take those tables that were uh, one billion rows in size, right? If you stuck that one task, you gotta wait for that thing, it takes a while to go, because it only does one table at a time. But with the select and transformation rules in DMS tasks, we figured out, hey, we could actually take subsections, select subsections of this, because we don't have referential integrity and stuff that to worry about anymore, put them across multiple tasks, and run that in parallel. And then take the majority, you know, like the other half of it, which is older audit data, ship that off the S3. We did that uh, manually after the migration task. And finally, we looked at instance sizing. So when you're dealing with this and you're migrating the data, there's three, you know, three very important places you want to keep track of, and we did, uh, is the source database. Make sure you're not taxing that. You don't want to affect anything that's going on there. The DMS instance size that you're migrating, because the CDC is keeping data, in our case, there's lots of data per day, and this could have been going for multiple days. So it's plugged in. Uh, pulling in all the data changes and keeping a log of what all those, so that way it can be applied in the end, so you gotta keep that in mind. Network and CPU, obviously, on the DMS instance and on the target 
instance, or target database cluster. You want to pay attention to all those and just kind of finely tune your levels and get it where it really works well for you. Um, the other thing I want to mention with DMS and SCT, we kind of got out of this, is really nice, is now we are going to be able to uh, plug this into our CI, CD, and automation pipelines, which will allow us to actually deploy this production-ready data to multiple landing zones or you know, environments. So like we got dev, staging, production. Now you can easily run these automated jobs. Uh, in our case, we're using Jenkins and Terraform, so we can set up jobs that will easily automate bringing up a new stack off of that data if you needed to. So with that being said, I'm gonna turn it over now to Scott, who's gonna talk a little bit about the performance gains that we saw in this migration, and then summarize our whole project. So a few quick things that we noticed, um, not talking uh, from the application side, uh, but from just immediate things we noticed with loading data into it. Um, one of the things we have to do with this database is, since it contains uh, market information from over 100 exchanges across the world, and those exchanges are closing throughout every day. Uh, when they close, we need to bring in their closing prices into the database. Uh, changes occur to these instruments as well. So there's company mergers. Something might move from one stock exchange to another, uh, get delisted, things like that. So we're loading data into it kind of pretty much constantly. Uh, one of the largest processes we have uh, is a set of files that is about a million lines of changes. And each line doesn't necessarily represent a single row in the database, right? Like these, these lines will end up creating queries across uh, anywhere between five to 10 different tables. So it takes a decent amount of time. And as I mentioned, we have to do this daily, um, but sometimes it's taking 26 and a half hours, which is kind of a problem. Uh, so we figured we have this shiny new database in uh, AWS, so uh, why are we still using an on-premise uh, on loader? We should move that to the cloud as well. So when we did that, and now that we have Aurora and an on-prem uh, or EC2 instance doing the loading, uh, we shaved that time down to six and a half hours. And that was, there was no code changes other than updating uh, the, the drivers to talk to the database. So, uh, another thing that we did is one of our most heavily used APIs in front of this, we have uh, multiple levels of caching on here. And for this particular application, sitting next to it is a SQLite database. And we pre-populate that with some of the most commonly accessed pieces of data from this database, uh, just so that uh, we have it quickly. Uh, the problem is, is as we're moving things to the cloud, we can't really scale that quickly, because either we spin up an old version of it and all the data's out of date, or we have to wait till we preload it. And so auto-scaling, while it could happen, it can't happen very fast. Uh, but with the read replicas, we are able to cut that cache out of it, because we can scale read replicas as we need to scale AP, our API instances. So those are a couple of the big wins that we, we saw right away. Uh, and then finally, I just want to wrap up kind of what Steve said here. Um, so with the schema transition, every database is going to be different. So take a look. It's hopefully, it, hopefully SCT works for you. Uh, we've used it on a number of projects, and we've used MySQL Workbench. And, and then when it comes to actually moving the data, when you're doing that, if you have a large database like we have here, uh, you might need to look at splitting, splitting up that workload across a number of tasks uh, and right-sizing the instances. In our case, since we knew it was going to take so long and we wanted CDC enabled, uh, that right-sizing was mostly related to storage, right? Because over 30 hours, we had 30 hours worth of data that we needed to keep on disk. Uh, also, if you can, or if, you need to, or if you're able to, like we were with our audit logs, we were able to ship those elsewhere. So we can use selection rules to kind of limit the amount of data that we're putting into that target database. And then finally, uh, with the MySQL, uh, we were able to use its native partitioning features rather than relying on our kind of homebrew partitioning for that. So uh, to do that, again, it was those selection and transformation rules. Those are really, really powerful. So I think that's what I have in if one of the... <coughs> All right, well, the, uh, the clock says I have 38 seconds left, so we, we timed that fairly well. Um, 
I'm not sure if there's another session coming up after, if they're trying to boot us all out. We're good, so I guess we, we have some time for questions. What I'm most curious about is uh, if the migration actually finished. And, you know, that SQL Server box, I don't know what it was doing, but it was going slow. Um, yeah, so anyway, if you have any questions, I'm more than happy to take them. It certainly looks like this actually succeeded now, so you can see, uh, I thought I hit the button. Oh, wrong one. There's too many buttons down here. Uh, you can see the DMS migration is finished. We've migrated all the tables across. It took five minutes. That's much longer than it normally takes. Uh, but what this means is if I run this same thing again uh, and I run my customer query, there we go. We have customers migrated across. So shows that it actually did work, live demos. You know, you've got to be able to think on your feet a bit. But uh, hopefully the presentation was interesting to you guys. Um, yeah, happy for questions. If you have any questions, feel free to come up uh, either at the mic or uh, even up to the stage. It's, uh, it's all good. Uh, oh, sorry. He's, uh, you know what? If, might as well use the mic, actually. If people are still here and we don't need to run out, why don't we use the mic? So my question is on DMS. What yep. is the best way to make sure that uh, the migration has completed successfully? Apart right. from checking the manual way of the... Apart from what I just did and going, hey, look, there's yeah. data. Yeah, I know you probably need to be a bit more uh, thorough, shall we say, with a production migration. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the features, and then these guys will probably tell you how they did it. Uh, we suggest using data validation. So data validation is a feature we released probably about a year ago now, uh, and it does a variety of things from hashes to row counts. Uh, it's an optional thing because it does add time at the end to the migration, but definitely suggest using that to, uh, to check that things have migrated across successfully. Do you guys do anything different? We were doing the SRC checks, so data validation, like you were talking about. Okay. The same question on the replication. How do I make sure that the replication is always running? And I can ensure that the replication is running, but how do I make sure that it's working properly and every data is in sync? Are you talking about with the migration, the, the app the migration, or are you, are you going to be using ongoing replication? Ongoing replication. Yeah, I, that, John, you might have to answer because we we actually did the type of migration that after we were all done, we didn't do ongoing replication. So afterwards, again, um, data validation, it works during both what we call the full load phase and the CDC phase. So it'll highlight if there's any, any issues that it encounters during the ongoing replication as well. Okay, sure. Thank you. You're welcome. A few questions. I, I see that you used um, conversion for stored procedures. Uh, does it convert user-defined functions number one? Yep. Do you have an equivalent feature for link servers? Link servers. Yes, we have like a stack of uh, three SQL servers talking to each other through link servers, and our data set is much, 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 much larger, including the logs we maintain. Uh, uh, does, does Aurora provide a feature wherein, uh, let's say, if there are 10 databases that needs to talk to, does it have to be all under one Aurora instance, or can you have like three Aurora instances talking to each other? And what about exercise packages? We have tons of them. We need them to be converted as well. I'm not sure I fully got the question. Um, as far as whether it converts links linked servers, I don't think it's going to know what it migrated to. So it's going to have so a hard. Do you have an equivalent feature? Let's say if the application uses link server or the, the stored proc uses link server, yep. then we need to have three different stacks of uh, databases to be able to talk to each other. Right. So how do we how do we do that? Do we have to put every, all the let's say there are 50 databases? And yeah, I, I get it. I'm, I can't remember if it converts link servers okay. at all. I don't. I think it does, but I, I need to double check on that one. I'm sorry. Okay. I don't uh, recall. I know you have uh, Amazon Glue, right, for SS ETL packages, yep. right? Are there tools that will convert uh, SQL SSIS packages to Amazon Glue one to one? Uh, um, watch this space. Okay. <laughs> one, one last question. We use um, Attunity, yep. a tool to do bidirectional replication from Oracle and SQL. Okay. Yep. Uh, if, let's say, we were to move from SQL Server to uh, Aurora, yeah. uh, do, do, we ha do you have a tool? Because uh, that tool is also not being supported anymore, the version we have. So if you want to move to a new tool, which will replicate between, let's say, Oracle legacy systems that we have to Aurora, mm -hmm. do you have any product that does that? So going from Oracle to Aurora, DMS will help. Um, but you're more than welcome to using any existing tools that you have. You know, we're not really we're not preferential in what use what you're most comfortable with, what you have licenses for, uh, but DMS is definitely an option for that migration path. Okay, and one question to these two gentlemen. You said you disabled foreign key constraints, right? You, you disabled foreign key constraints. What was that again? Sorry. You, you, you said you disabled foreign key constraints, right? 
referential integrity for yeah, agents. Yeah, during the migration. Yes, during the migration. Right, on a, uh, for the target. This is a, just target, yes. Yeah, there's, there's a advanced features. You can pass flags to connection, connecting to the target database, and there's okay. a feature to disable uh, foreign key checks. Yep. Uh, you, you do that on the target endpoint. It's on the initialization. There's a, there's a block in the advanced settings that you can set that. And then you'll turn it back on when you're complete. Um, the other thing you'll get, too, is you'll have a faster migration, because it's not happening in force integrity checks. Do you, have, do, you fo do you folks have any white papers published that we can review? Because... Uh, Cost is one feature, right? As, uh, as John mentioned with SQL Server. Do you have any white papers that you guys published on this? Uh, we have not published any. I, I, I would say they would be coming. I will give you, if you want to get with me after this, sure, you sure. give me your email address and we'll get you the information. Okay, thank you. Yep. Now, unfortunately, we've just been evicted. Um, but I'm, we'll all just step outside the door. I'm not running off anywhere. So happy to take questions. Oh, you're right. Okay. All right. Thanks, guys.